Hello, my geeselings. It is Mother Goose Robinson Earhart. It's the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 45. This was a particularly fun one for me. I spoke with Jody Azuni, who's a professor of philosophy at Tufts University. He does a lot of things, but he's best known for his work in philosophy of mathematics, though, like I mentioned, he also does philosophy of language, science, a lot of logic. Yet, uh, Jody is also a, a very prolific author in a variety of dimensions. So he writes poetry, he writes novels, he writes short stories, he writes essays. And if you've listened to many of these episodes, you've realized that, or you know that these are things that are very dear to my heart as well. So Jody and I spent a significant amount of the conversation talking about his writing, its relationship to his philosophy. We go into some depth on in a couple of his poems, uh, which I I really got a kick of kick out of. He he does two really nice readings, and we dissect them a little bit. Uh, but then we move on to the debate between nominalists and Platonists in the philosophy of mathematics, and we talk a lot about this debate on a on a broad broad level. I was I was saying high level, but. I don't know. I don't know if low level or high level is what I mean. So I'll just say broad level. And then we we get into some more granular details. We talk about Jody's own uh, deflationary stance in this debate. He's a nominalist. And then we also discuss uh, some adjacent concerns about ontological ontological commitment more generally in both natural and uh, formal language. So. If you're not super into the poetry stuff, which it's okay, you're missing out, but I am including the the timestamps. So so if you're watching on YouTube or if you're watching on or listening on Spotify or Apple, you can always check the timestamps stamps and skip around to the philosophy of math. But without any further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as uh, I enjoyed talking to Jody, but I will I will actually note one last thing. So I was experimenting with a green screen, and I recorded two episodes with the green screen. This one, and then I also speak with uh, or spoke with Gabe Greenberg of UCLA, and he he was visiting uh, Stanford right now. So this is one of the episodes that I used a green screen for. It turned out to be a huge hassle, and I decided to nix it. But uh, for these two episodes, you get the green screen and. My sister was adamant that I be in the Pleistocene period for this episode. So that's where you'll find me. Now, without any further ado, enjoy. Before we get into the philosophy, the philosophy of math, maybe some metaphysics, on your website, you describe yourself in this order as a writer, a poet, and then lastly, a philosopher. And I'm wondering if, if that is coincidental. No, it's more chronological than anything else. Okay. I started writing in sixth grade. Um, I started doing poetry in eighth grade, short stories, fiction, Um I was reading philosophical, you know, uh, writers, 
uh, like Dostoevsky. I was actually reading Nietzsche in high school. Oh, uh, I I did too, but I didn't understand any of it. Well, I think no. I had uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra, but it was not a contemporary translation. It was like in some phony Middle English, and it was very, very difficult to read. Well, it was probably that, that I forgot the name of the translators, but Nietzsche has been treated horribly until the last, well, really 15 years, at least as far as Anglo-American stuff is concerned. That's because, I'm sorry, are we recording this? <laughs> Oh, yeah, this is recorded. All right, well, I'm, I'm going to say it anyway, uh, okay. which is because the Continentals got their hands on him first. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. But yes, that's – and it was just terrible. And I think Nietzsche's been horribly misinterpreted. But anyway, that's Nietzsche. Go on. Okay, Um. so well, my next question – I'm this book on Nietzsche. Oh, that you're going to release posthumously? Yeah, I'm not going to publish it while I'm alive. <laughs> no because way. of because it's too hostile to continental well, because philosophers. Well, Nietzsche. You you see the sort of stuff I write about. <laughs> okay, okay, that's fair. Um, well, my next the next thing I was curious about was, I mean, you've published so much philosophy as well as poetry and short fiction, but never any of your novels. Uh, that's not my doing. Um, okay. I've, try, I've tried a number of times to get novels published. I came close in the 90s, late 90s, because Jonathan Lethem had read one of my novels, Superman, and he loved it. So he was pushing it on publishers and, and uh, some agents, but they seemed to be nervous about the fact that the title was Superman. Okay, uh, I see. And a lot of my other fiction, I don't know what you've looked at, uh, is can be what's described as highly experimental. For example, there's a form I developed called that I call synchronous prose. Um, that's because I was trying to capture dialogue as it naturally happens, not in an interview setting, but as it naturally happens, we talk over each other, but process it all seems. So I actually, okay. there's a short story published in the Wisconsin Review a bunch of years ago that had a little piece from a whole novel that was written in that style, which is like music. Okay, so you have the, the, the voices simultaneous with spacing and no punctuation because that doesn't happen orally. Anyway, so, yeah. So you'll, will, you, you ha will you have the two speakers vertically aligned or horizontally no, no, like two lines that, together Leslie Shaw did it for example no they're horizontally lined up and so say you have two speakers here's a here's b they're below each other one's one's below the other and then they're spacing um if you look at the uh wisconsin review article uh, uh short story review article <laughs> short story i i can or i can send it to you and show you yeah but well what's it like called you, for listeners if they if they want to look at it yeah, it's in the Wisconsin Review uh, some years ago. It may be on my website, too. I don't really know. But do you know what it's called? Um, phone call. Okay. Okay, cool. Because it's a phone call. And it's one of those solicitation phone calls where you try to talk and the other person just runs over you. And, and that's what I was capturing. But I was working on a whole novel like that. 
I did. I wrote a whole novel like that called Ambivalent Carnivores. It was a detective novel, but written in that way. And I had an agent who was interested in me. And I remember telling her, I said, I'm doing a detective novel. You know, it starts with a murdered dog. And she's like, yes, yes, that's good. That's good. And I'm saying, and then I say, and here's how I'm writing it. And she goes, please <laughs> don't do that. So, yeah, yeah. I, 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 my, my prose tends to be, I mean, my short stories, actually, a lot of them are far more conservative than some of the work mm -hmm. in the novels. So anyway, uh, the novels are there. Some of them are pretty normalish, but I just have not had, maybe I haven't pushed enough or. Yeah, well, I'm sure you could find a small press or even self-publish if you wanted to. Yeah, I, I shy away from self-publishing. Even the poetry, it's not self-published. It was the Poets Press. It's a real press. Mm -hmm. um, I, I shy away from self-publishing. I guess it feels like vanity. So <laughs> yeah, I, vanity I hear that. Conscience. Yeah, no, that that's funny. That's not a coincidence. No. Um, now, your poetry, though, what I've read is does not strike me as particular. I mean, in so much as a, po a lot of poetry is experimental, yours doesn't strike me as particularly experimental. I mean, what I've read is it's free verse. I mean, it's not like a Shakespearean sonnet, but you, no. is that what you, how you think of your poetry as well as experimental? Well, again, you have to look at the whole evolution of it. Um, okay. And the Lust for Blueprints really doesn't do that for you because it only goes to about 2001. But you'll notice the poems at the very beginning, uh, well, some of them are a little more um, uh, fragmentary. I don't, maybe I'll put it that way. And if you've looked at hereafter landscapes, you'll see that's, that's pretty fragmentary um, in a certain sense. That's just a, a kind of um, impressionistic point about it. So perhaps that could be seen as experimental. I'm not trying to experiment. I'm trying to write poems that work for me. And, but there tends to be, there has been a, a serious evolution in um, how I approach it. The earlier work was far more narrative based. That is to say, there was a character, a voice, you know, almost, right. almost like um, uh, Brownian. You know, uh, yeah, well, actually, there is one poem. I so I, I spoke with Sophie Grace Chappelle a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. and she did a reading for me of Gerard Manley Hopkins, and okay. it was it was really nice. Uh, one of his terrible sonnets, I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. And I was hoping I can cut this question out if it's if if you're not interested but i would love to hear you read uh christmas morning and then oh, talk okay. about it I can do that. because because that that is that sort of de describes or you just described it in that it is a narrative and there's a voice and a character um yeah, yeah so Absolutely. so would you it's read funny. it i wrote a pair right there's making do and christmas morning and what i wanted to do in both of them was i wanted to adopt the view of an atheist and in the other poem of a, a serious believer and write them both where both characters are not exactly all there, although they're mostly all there, um, but without any condescension. 
And making do, by the way, um, actually, I sent it somewhere or other. I don't remember where. But it got the response was, you capture perfectly, this is what I was told, the plight of the testifying Christian. And I thought, okay, I succeeded in, in imaginatively getting into a certain kind of head that's kind of alien to me. So Christmas morning the is the, Wait, the plight of the what Christian? Testifying Christian. That's jargon. Okay. I'm not sure exactly what the jargon is because I don't travel in those circles, but I think you can uh -huh. figure it out. Yeah. I mean, in Making Do is about a character who's preaching in the subways, New York subways. Okay. This is not a friendly place to preach. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> anyway, let me read Christmas Morning. Um, I'll do it. Uh, 34. Um, I haven't read this poem in a long time, so I may not be perfect. My children strip the skin from their gifts pull the gaudy insides into the light and play with them. I sit sullen, swallow a pill or two, and watch the pine tree covered with wire and glass die slowly. There's a history to all of this, I tell the dying tree, the flayed gifts. All around us are the bones of one god or another. My children ignore me. My husband says, Cass? So I tell them we need new holidays for the global warming that is coming soon. We can pray for the rebirth of snowflakes. We can pretend they hang in the night sky, waiting, always waiting, and occasionally crying. We can sit in our loincloths around the cool fluorescent lamp fire and listen to the elders tell stories about ice cubes. We can pray to the fridge. My husband has had enough. He approaches, takes my hand, leads me away. I wish my dead friend, who is everywhere, a happy birthday. <laughs> Actually, I'm kind of pleased you, you asked me to read this, because I haven't read this in a very long time. and. It's an actually a quite old poem. I believe in the 1990s is when I wrote it. Um, yes, because it was published in 94. It was possibly written even in the 80s. So it doesn't, at the time, it sounds a little more, you know, extreme than it does now. Now we're no, in the it's... throes of, 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 of climate warm, warming, and she just sounds like, well, hey, this is what's coming. In the 1980s, I was thinking, oh, hey, this is what's coming. She's called Cass because it's Cassandra, who yeah. um, no one believes. Well, something very interesting that, about your reading is that the copy that I have, it doesn't say global warming. It says hot weather. Wait, did I say global warming? Yeah. Oh, wait, the copy that you have of the Lust for Blueprints? The, not of the Lust for Blueprints. It's on blackcatpoems.com. It originally appeared in, in Voices International, Volume 29, Number 4. And it says, so I tell them we need new holidays for the hot weather coming soon. Isn't that funny? 
I don't know. This is this is 2001. So if I made a change, I made it here in 2001. Or maybe the other ones are later. I don't know the answer to this. You know, Actually, it's it's fascinating not. because um, the the change from hot weather to global warming mm -hmm. makes the poem read entirely differently. Of course it does. Yeah. And, I, I, and all I can say is this was 2001. Uh, in fact, I hadn't even written the Hereafter Landscapes yet, which is uh, bleak. You look at it, you've got all sorts of disasters in the series of poems, including global warming, which I was much more intensely aware of by 2001. I'm not mm -hmm. real by, by 2010, sorry, not 2001, 2010. The uh, younger Bush was in office. And that but was, what, was, that was depressing was, me. Yeah, I, you know, wait, was, was climate change though still on your mind when you initially wrote this or does it sort of take on a new reading after you changed that? That no, um, I started worrying about climate change uh, as a teenager. Okay, so you were already very well it was aware for two of it. reasons. I stopped, for example, I um, there are two things I stopped doing right away. Uh, as soon as as soon as I was starting to shave, I got rid of canis those those um, canisters and went to the old fashioned brush. Huh. So that's a long time ago since I'm an yeah. old husband. And, and then I knew a pastor in my teenage years who was very focused, a, a man named Dr. Atwater, uh, lived in the neighborhood, who was very focused at that time, and I think this is the 70s, on uh, the death of the ocean. We're killing the ocean, he was saying then. So... I was getting these messages and reading things and taking them seriously at that point. Hmm. Okay. It seemed to me this was coming. Um, and I've kind of off and on lived with it. I haven't been depressed by it. Um, uh, certainly not when I was younger, cause I was just too exuberant. Uh, my first depression about it was around the time that I started writing here after landscapes. I'm sorry, this conversation is going in a, direction that you probably didn't expect i apologize no but that's that's entirely okay um but two things though that jump out at me about the poem yeah. is until you said and this is i mean it makes me feel kind of silly for not realizing it uh beforehand but when you mentioned uh the plight of the testifying christian the last stanza made much more sense to me so my husband has had enough he approaches me, takes my hand, leads me away. I right, wish my not, dead friend. This is not the poem with the plight of the testifying Christian. She's an atheist. Right, but but Next even poem. bringing even yeah. bringing the Christian element more closely into yeah. focus when he says, "I I wish my dead friend who is everywhere what a happy she birthday." Says, I did think of her as a, a cat, Cassandra. He, he, my husband. So she, it it looks to me like he's taking her hand, oh, yes. leading her away, and then saying this. No, no, no. Hold on. I'm sorry. See, th when things like this happen, then I think to myself, "Oh my God, I need to rewrite poem because um, I do want to get across." 
he take he approaches um takes my hand leads me away i wish my dead friend who is everywhere a happy birthday mm-hmm. so what are you thinking it just because he's the actor i just as uh, a uh, sort of um assumed that the i wish my dead friend who is everywhere a happy birthday him speaking and him, no, him uttering those words. The narrative. I think I can. Right. I can press you on that. That it's, no, that's fair. But yeah. the point that I was getting at was that my dead friend, who is everywhere, a happy birthday is is Jesus, and I I like that a lot. But yeah. there's. I read a book once on poetic closure, which mm-hmm. is. I mean, people write about this, uh, how poems end, and this. I mean, that's a really powerful line to end the poem. And I'm not sure that there are poetic, uh, are books on poetic, I don't know, entry. Oh. No, entry, beginnings. But those first three lines are also a really powerful beginning. And I think that's what, I mean, the ending and the beginning are what uh, drew me into this poem. Okay. My children strip the skin from their gifts, pull the gaudy insides into the light, and play with them. Yeah, it's very good. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. it's um, yes. So, leading into your philosophy mm. is, I mean, so this is very different from the philosophy of math or logic or some of the metaphysics you've worked on. Are your novels, short stories, your poetry in any way connected to your philosophical writing beyond the sort of trivial fact that you're the one who wrote all of it? Well, I think that the trivial fact is not so trivial, but I'm not the right person to explain the connections. Um, But people do feel that my sensibility stamps everything I do. So that's, and that's a little elusive and I'm not good at being able to tell you anything distinctive about my sensibility since I live there. But um, the poems, there, there are occasional poems that are um, playing with philosophical themes that I wouldn't be doing if I hadn't been reading philosophy. Wintertime is one of those where it was because I was thinking about um, uh, the philosophy of vision as an undergraduate. I wrote that poem as an undergraduate, that I was thinking that it ends up being the way it is, the view from inside, the view from outside, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a few other poems where those kinds of things happen. And the poem about the Unabomber, who was a mathematician, I played with, and there's a little bit of mathematics philosophical themes actually come in intrude a little more heavily. Oh, no, there's one other thing. I have funny views about time that have not made it into print yet. And they're actually have been showing up in the poems for some years. Um, I'm just going to say that. But sometimes I allow myself in fiction and the poetry to start exploring philosophical themes that I'm not ready to present with these suitable argumentation, et cetera, in the philosophy. So I wait, but they, they kind of come out as it were literarily, uh, the novels, um, Superman's highly philosophical as it turned out. Uh, and a lot of the novels are in various ways, 
playing with uh, various themes. I'll just pick something out of Superman at random. At one point, uh, Superman runs into a scientist who simply does not believe any of the stories he's heard about Superman. And the scientist runs David Hume's argument on miracles at him. So that actually happens in the novel. So there's some things like that going on, and they often go on in the other novels. Um, so I don't know if that is enough of a connection for you. No, no, that's a really a good connection. I mean, it's helpful for me because uh, my own thought. So when I am writing, I don't think any philosophy of math or metaphysics or anything is coming out but my own my thoughts on ethics or meta ethics that are certainly far from going into print i haven't even really done much actual philosophical research on it those come out in the literature and maybe like yours they sort of they maybe they might presage some actual yeah no, philosophical research but <clears throat> this this might be too much of well this is a personal question so you don't have to answer it, but you say that you're not the person to talk about your sensibilities. And which leads me to wonder whether you've ever done any therapy or psychoanalytic work or anything like that, because I, I imagine that that would probably majorly transform your, your literary work. If you had deeper insight into your own sensibilities do you I feel think, that way or no no see i'm gonna argue with you first of all i'm gonna just answer the question which is um no no therapy no um none of that the second point i'm gonna make is i think i have a lot of insight into myself i was actually pointing to something else i i can tell you all sorts of things about how my creative process works if I were going to get personal i can tell you all sorts of things about my emotional makeup etc cetera, etc cetera. i can do all that the problem is sensibility, as I'm trying to understand it, is this kind of global flavor that you get about somebody. Like Hopkins. Hopkins has a very distinctive sensibility. Let's pick him. Shaw. In fact, I've got a little essay on Shaw because the thing that was puzzling me for years as a teenager about Shaw was I kept feeling with all the characters. I said, something's missing here. Something's not here. And it, it suffuses everything he writes. And then one day, and this is the sort of thing you are going to recognize as a teenager, you, you know, because of certain uh, hormonal facts, I suddenly realized, oh, here's what's going on. None of Shaw's characters have any sexual interest in any of other Shaw's characters. There's all this romance, romance going on, but there really isn't. And when you find out about Shaw's biography, it makes perfect sense. But that colors his sensibility in a very strange way. And there are other cases of this kind of thing. But it's a global feel. Now, I can start to point to things that happen in my writing, you know, cer certain kinds of quirkinesses, certain ways that imagery comes in. I can tell you how I do this. But there's a kind of global flavor to my sensibility, to anyone's sensibility, if it's developed enough in their work, that I don't feel. I can't feel because I'm not there. I have to be outside. That was the point I was making. Okay. 
No, that that no, I I like that. That's a good point. Uh, what is it about Shaw's biography that sheds light on his asexuality or the asexuality well, one, of his one, writing? One important point is that his his lifelong wife, when they finally got together and it was a love match, et cetera, et cetera, they I almost want to put it this way: did not bother to consummate it. And Shaw really had very little interest in, in sex. Okay. There's a, a, some incidents when he was young, and, and then that was it. Hmm. So that kind of... <laughs> that's, that's kind the of reason it's particularly interesting is I hadn't realized this about Gerard Manley Hopkins, but he was very gay, and that was part of what I wake and feel the fell of Dark Not Day is about, uh, or at least that that was Sophie's interpretation is that he's lying there he's like sort of sick with his inability to sort of live out who he wants to be that can play a role Uh, somerset Mm maughan was also gay for example and i think it colors the sensibility doesn't always there's with Mm -hmm. a writer with a a good writer what of their sensibility of what of their sensibility comes into the persona of the writer that's up for grabs and they can be very far apart or or interconnected in a certain way biography is a treacherous field mm-hmm. a very treacherous field you have to be extremely careful i think i i have in as you know in the lust for blueprints there's this little essay at the end uh, kind of an essay, numbered paragraphs, an essay on aesthetics, where I'm imitating the Tractatus a little bit, the style of it. Mm-hmm. But I'm serious about a certain kind of uh, division that I draw between the writer and, as it were, not the narrator. You've got several personas here. You have the writer, the real person who's doing the writing. You've got kind of the writerly persona. How that work comes across, it's done by a person, we feel it, etc. And then there are the narrators, one or many of the genres. And these can be all very different. So you have to be, I always think biography, got to be careful. Um, So, yeah, that's what I mean by sensibility. And I'm saying Mm -hmm. my writerly sensibility, mm, I don't know what it looks like. Okay. It's too far away. Well, I I could talk about the writing all day, but I do <laughs> want to get to the the philosophy. And so I, the only person I've spoke with on the podcast about time so far is David Albert, and I'm not then expecting you, especially since you don't have any views about time in print yet to really have as fully fleshed out uh, a position as he does on time, but what were your views about time that didn't make it into print? Well, I, yeah, it's not something I want to go into a lot. I mean, the main mm-hmm. thing is, is I'm a, I'm a kind of, well, I, I'm a kind of, because what always happens is when I finally work out the details of a position, I only turn out to be a kind of thing. I don't turn out to be that thing. You know, I started out, you know, looking, thinking I was kind of a Hobbesian nominalist and I'm really not. I'm a, I'm a more radical kind of nominalist, weirdly. Um, that's ontology without borders. But um, yep. roughly speaking, um, time, I, I, I take seriously the 
um, the spatialization of the idea. I don't, I think it's just, it's laid out as it were. It's, it's a weird geometry, uh, but it's a, ultimately it's a landscape. And that's how I'm going to put it. I'm going to I'm going to go metaphorical. I do, I'm willing to do that since I haven't published philosophically yet. Okay. We are landscapes. That's what we are. And um, um, you explain the experience of the passage of time. You don't presuppose it in your analysis of the physics. That's what I'm going to say. Can I say that? Okay. Is that enough? Y- yeah, I won't. I won't press you any further on it. I'll. I'll press you more on the philosophy of math, which I know you have plenty of writing on. So, you, you started out. I mean, writing, uh, like you said, in sixth grade. So, how was it that mathematics and philosophy of math, in particular, uh, came to grip you so much and has gripped you for? I mean, a lot of your philosophical career. Um, complete contingency. Um, in high school and in, in um, well, we called it junior high school and in grammar school, I was lousy at math. But of course, what I was lousy at was computation, which I'm terrible at because I have a kind of sloppiness. And I thought I was terrible in high school because I went to Stuyvesant. I was always almost failing. I was failing. No, 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 no. I wasn't almost failing. I was failing. <laughs> And what would happen is we had, I think they were regents, that's what they were called, which is if you got a high enough um, uh, grade on the regent that you couldn't fail. And so about two weeks before, I would go and buy some self-help, some some math help books. For trigonometry, I did this. And for geometry, I did this. And sort of learn it and then get a high enough grade. Now, I thought that meant I wasn't very good at math. But it actually turns out um, I went right to graduate school in mathematics after my undergraduate degree without an undergraduate degree in mathematics. So I actually had real capacity, but it wasn't for computation. It was as soon as we got into things like real proofs and, and, and complex mathematical structures, then I'm like <gasps> pulled in. So yeah. I, I started mm-hmm. doing it because I was, I was an undergraduate major in philosophy. I was doing all continental reading. And Earl uh, uh, modern and modern, you know, all of that. And what kept hitting me about modern, and here I mean, you know, Descartes and Leibniz, Spinoza, is like, I need to know some mathematics. And so as an undergraduate, I started taking the calculus sequence, and uh, which I hated because calculus is recipe book. And it wasn't until I just took a course by accident, linear algebra, that I started to see real, beautiful mathematical structure and real mathematical proofs. Okay, so that's when I started uh, doing this. Now, jumping ahead to my first book and my early publications, I wasn't intending to write philosophy of mathematics. I wasn't really thinking there was a subject philosophy of mathematics. At that time, yes, there was Resnick, there was Penelope Maddy. um, There was some stuff like that. There was Putnam who was doing many things um, and among them worries about uh, mathematics. And I, my first book I was planning, and this has happened to me eight or nine times. 
I'm writing a book. I decide I have to write a book in part because Tufts is telling me if you don't write a book, you will not get tenure and you will be jobless. So <laughs> brutal. I'm, 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 which I don't mind. I mean, I want to write a book. I, I, I love mm -hmm. writing. So I started planning a book called basically where I was going to do the epistemology and ontology of the sciences. And it was going to be, you know, mathematics and, and, and the empirical sciences. And then at a certain point as I'm working out the stuff in mathematics, I go, Oh no, this, this is going to be too big. So they ended up being two books. Uh, okay. The first one being, you know, the mathematics book and the second one being empirical science. And I ended up laying out, uh, you know, basically, really, that those things should have been six more books, and they subsequently became those. One and they definitely gave you tenure for two books. Well, no, no, no. It was only the first book. Actually, they gave me tenure for a third of a book. Oh, um, great that's deal. All I'd written. But the third of the book had some technical matters in it in the beginning that um, when they sent it out to a referee, the referee was George Bulos, whom I'd not Oh, met. wow. And Bulos said, give him a contract on the basis of that third. That's a, that's a high praise. On that basis. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, um, um, you know, that that work has eventually uh, been published in a, in a much more full form. It was in the uh, book, but very truncated. And uh, I have a 2019 paper where I'm laying it out. I mean, Bulos is especially generous, I realized subsequently, because I was running an argument against not identifying um, higher order logic with uh, first People tended, to, let me put it this way, people tended to think, still think, still a popular view, third generation, fourth generation, still popular, that, oh, you know, there's a real problem nailing what you want to talk about in first order logic, non-standard models. So we go higher order logic, and it's not arbitrary. It's not by fiat. It's just higher order logic has better resources. And what I was doing was showing you by uh, exhibiting an equivalence between higher order logic and a kind of modified first order logic where it was modified, you know, the model theory is modified, the, the language is modified so that you get something that's metalogically identical to higher order logic. But... All of the tricks and maneuvers are visible. For hmm. example, oh, we divide each domain of the, these models in half, where the, uh, speaking roughly, one half are the sets of the other half, that kind of thing. But it's all stipulated. And once you see this, the thought that somehow higher order logic has these powers, referential powers, you know, categorical powers, um, you realize, no, 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 this is just being, you know, set up in the formalism and in the relationship of the formalism to the uh, somewhat artificial models. I, did I do all that way too fast and too whatever? I think it was okay for me, but for my audience, I, 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 wanna, I still want to get to the technical matters, but I wanted okay. to start out with 
uh, some more technically agnostic material, I guess. Okay. I apologize. Okay. No, <laughs> no, no, no. That's that's totally fine. So I, what I wanted to start with, you already hinted at it when you referenced Hobbes and then your own more, I guess, radical views. But uh, first steps, you've written a lot about and thought a lot about nominalism. Now, what is the debate between Platonists and nominalists in mathematics? Okay, the debate between them in mathematics is that nominalists think for various reasons, there are different kinds of nominalists, right? Right, uh, right. Uh, but we'll get into that. But for various reasons, um, they think you don't need uh, to believe in, be committed to, or have your theories be committed to for everybody, for everything to function as we'd like it to in the sciences, etc. You don't need to quantify over um, uh, abstracta platonic objects like numbers etc and then uh the platonist thinks you do and the debate gets sticky along a number of dimensions why don't you need these things and what does it mean to say you don't need them so for example if you're a certain kind of nominalist the sort of nominalist the field is to be honest you say oh we don't need these objects because the space-time manifold or something like that is already giving them to us in a different form. And then there are other nominals like me that go, no, that's cheating. You've already hmm. got your platonic objects. They're embedded. You can label them differently. You can call them Aristotelian or whatever you want to do. But in point of fact, um, you are deserting the fine cause of nominalism. Well, maybe maybe I'll push back on that at some point because I think okay. his position requires him to be a substantivalist about space. So there, I mean, maybe that's not what you're referring to, but I would think of the space-time points as or regions as not being abstracta. But maybe that's right. Maybe, that is okay. that is what he is going to claim, and I argue against it. I mean, it okay. it, it, it turns on. Um, in my case, the kind of nominalist I am, one of the things I'm focusing on is epistemic access to the objects. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are people that want to say something like, yeah, we have access to, for example, space-time points. And I have a tendency to say, no, we don't. We do have an access to regions. I'm willing to grant that. But in point of fact, when you characterize mathematically a region a certain way, you are now hypothesizing little tiny entities that you don't have access to. Okay? So um, ultimately yeah. the debate is going to be epistemic, in my view. Uh, no, I have okay. a, a current paper on this. Oh, that's, that's actually a really interesting point because, I don't know, if we don't have – we hardly have access, or maybe we do have access, maybe we don't, to, to quarks or things smaller than quarks. How are we going to get access to something that's like one-dimensional? Exactly. Uh, what would it even mean? Or zero-dimensional, yeah. Exactly. Now, notice you get certain things. It's very interesting because, you know, you, you don't want to take the mathematical structure of space-time point. This is what I'm trying to claim. You don't want to say, I get all, I'm committed to all of it or I'm committed to none of it. Um, in point of fact, my view is um, 
what you have is you have something that's embedded with mathematical structure as we describe it. And when I want to talk about what I'm really committed to, I'm not going to accept all of that, but I am going to accept some of that. So, for example, I do want to say we have epistemic access to curvature. But I'm not going to say space-time points. I'm not going like to say... curvature in those gravitational, uh, in the gravitational lensing sort of sense? Exactly. Okay. That's right. Actually, maybe could you say what that is <laughs> uh, for, um, for people who don't know? Well... What I'm focusing on, you use that jargon, I'm focusing on something very, very straightforward. When you have massive okay. objects, they make yeah. space-time curve around them. And you can right. actually measure that right, by right, right. looking at the light and seeing where it's supposed to be. Right, right, that's... right. No, yeah, so that's what gravitational lensing is. So, I mean, if you have a star on the other side of a black hole, the black hole will its gravitational field will warp the light so that you end up actually seeing the same star in two locations to either side of the black hole, even though it's directly behind the black hole, Perfect. which is exactly um, quite interesting. But, you know, I, I actually want to diverge a bit from my planned course. So I, I just read a lot of Hartree Field, and this point that you're bringing up epistemic access to points didn't ever occur to me as a reject an objection as I was reading it. And what I'm, and maybe this is um, so far back in the past, you don't have a uh, recollection of it, or maybe it was just sort of an aha thing, but how did this objection come to you? Oh, that's a funny question. Um, it actually came to me many, many years ago. See, I, I have a very weirdly retentive brain. It hangs on to things. That's where helpful. I'm like going, what? That's helpful. I, it, it, it's proven to be. Because sometimes, you know, when something really bugs me, I, I can't let it go. And not that I'm thinking about it all the time, but it's sitting in the back of my consciousness. I actually ran across a version of an argument uh, that we, uh, you know, actually interact point at points in space-time. I believe it's in Colin McGinn, of all places, uh, in the late 70s. And um, it hit me immediately, as these arguments often do. That's crazy. And so when I saw the, the, the heart to feel, it struck me immediately. That's crazy. There's another example of the same thing, which is people, this is my, I, maybe it's the most notorious thing about me in philosophy, my deflationary nominalism, that I don't think the quantifiers are ontologically committing, that there is statements aren't ontologically committing. Now, there's two, two issues here. One is what we, how we talk in English, and the other one is what yeah. the, formal, the formalism looks like. Right. So you take a, a standard formalism, right? Uh, Tarski formalism, you know, standard semantics. And people tend to think, oh, if you're doing Tarski semantics, of course your quantifiers are committing you to the domain. What's a domain? Well, it turns out what a domain is, is a linkage between the quantifiers that you're talking about and the quantifiers that you're using to talk about the other quantifiers. That's all it is. So if, if there's a commitment, 
uh, it's not a, a pool of objects. It's another quantifier. So, so there's the no domain is a link between the meta language and the object language. Between the specifically between the quantifiers in the meta language yeah, and the okay. quantifiers in the object language. So you know if you're thinking quantifiers aren't committing to bring up domains is irrelevant. Well, that was something I saw immediately. People either see it immediately or they don't see it. So there's a number of cases where the only answer I can give you when you ask that question is, well, it just hit me, you know? And in the case of points, it was, well, how the hell am I supposed to do this? When mm. I point, I'm not pointing at a bunch of points, I'm pointing at a region. That's the best I can do. So it was that mm -hmm. kind of, it was that kind of in your face, aha, I'm shocked. And when I was very young, my reaction when that would happen would be, I'm missing something. And then I would just go silent. I would be quiet because obviously I was missing something since somebody ran this argument and they know what they're doing and um, I, I must not. But hmm. with age, you get a little more, I don't know. Um, you, you say things like, well, I'm not sure about that. Does that. Did I answer your question? Yes, yes, you did. You did, thank you. And Okay, returning back to maybe the the ground level, I guess, of this Platonist nominalist debate. Uh, so we don't need the, the nominalist says we don't need abstract, although there is debate maybe about what it what it means to say that we don't need them. But the Platonist side of things, how do Platonists conceive of mathematical objects? Well, it depends on the Platonist. Yeah, and there's a lot of views there. Um, um, I am not usually engaging in details with this uh, because my maneuver is through the quantifiers. So what I'm doing is I'm capturing truth, all the truth of the mathematics without the commitments. That's my approach. But if you're not going to do that, then you have to get into the weeds of the question of exactly what kind of Platonism are we talking about? what kinds of objects are Platonistic objects and, you know, how seriously are, are the arguments for and against them. And, you know, the standard view is that they're eternal, unchanging objects. But although there are people out there that think they're kind of social objects of some sort or social um, objects. Okay. Yeah. That they evolve. There are views mm -hmm. out there of people who think, Oh, well, you know, they actually change. So the, um, the first view that you mentioned, eternal, unchanging objects, they're abstract in the sense that they are not causally related to anything, anything related, physical. It's added they're not in space-time, although, as we just discussed, some people think they are. Um, yeah. Uh, or, or, they, or no, they don't think they are. They don't think those are abstract objects. They think the abstract objects have to be outside of space and time and acausal. And then you you see uh, they, that's generally the picture. But you find yourself, the standard, it's still in power, uh, argument is what's called the indispensability argument. You know that, which says something like you've got to be committed to these things to make your mathematics true. And But these things are, you know, a-causal, not in space right. and time, necessary 
right? Most of the standard modal literature treats them as necessary. They're in every possible world. So that, that's the picture. And ultimately, I mean, it, it varies how people run the arguments for them. Lewis ran his argument. Um, he actually didn't get platonic objects, but he got possible worlds through an indispensability argument. But there are also people now running the argument that we have to be committed to these platonic objects because they play an explanatory role. And so that that literature is showing up. And that's um, a lot of people are working on that, um, uh, running that kind of argument for platonic objects. So th the picture would be the metaphysics, I assume, I think this has got to be right, would be read out of the explanatory role. So you would have an explanatory role. You would have, perhaps it can be called an inference of the best explanation to abstract of a certain sort. So that is that kind of picture. Am I answering your question? It's kind yeah, of Yeah, you did. No, yeah. you did. Um, but I'd like to extend it a little bit. Mm. Do your views on uh, nominalism also extend are they also arguments against other forms of realism maybe like uh, i i think of intuitionism as a kind of realism it's not platonism but it's still a realism about mathematical objects or people who would say their realism isn't is is more object agnostic but it's just that some statements like uh, the continuum hypothesis is independent of ZFC, has an objective uh, truth value independent of human minds. Does, is your nominalism also op opposed to these sorts of views? Well, as it turns out, that's going to connect to... See, I was actually going to go in a different direction when you, your question started. I was going to say, yes, I'm not a realist about fictional objects. I'm not a realist about hallucinations, but that's not where you went. No, no. <laughs> um, and what I want to say is, well, that's going to turn on my ultimate views about mathematical practice. But in point of fact, yes, I am a nominalist. And also, I don't think I have a certain picture about truth that accompanies the nominalism. It's a kind of neutralist view. I used to describe it as deflationist, but that's misleading. My view was never deflationist. My view was, you know, that um, truth is governed by a certain logical framework. But in point of fact, um, you can say blah, blah, blah is true if and only if blah, 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 and the blah, blah, blah may commit you to things, may not commit you to things. It may look like correspondence. It may not look like correspondence. That's why it's neutralist. But on that view, I was going to say things like when it comes to, you know, uh, the continuum hypothesis and things like that, um, the, the right answer is something like this. So I've got a certain mathematical framework at the present moment. And given my mathematical framework, it's incomplete in the technical sense, and also in the ordinary sense. It's incomplete. <laughs> and now the question is, can we supplement it in a non-conservative way so that we get now, and, and the supplementation is something that 
is independently appealing and nice, etc., such that we get um, um, new results resolving the continuum hypothesis and things like that. To me, that's what's left of that of the realist question. That's what it is. Okay. And now when you say, what's a nice supplementation? An example, which I do not know whether it's conservative or not, is the embedding of real analysis in complex analysis. Okay? Mm -hmm. that, that is a beautiful streamlining via complex analysis, all sorts of real analysis results. It's one of the first right. things you learn when you do complex right. analysis. Now, whether it's conservative, whether you need to go through the complex analysis or you can manage things um, just in real analysis, I do not know the answer to. I'm under the impression no one knows the answer at the present moment. There was this working issue about Feynman who always claimed he could integrate anything using real analysis that people would use complex analysis. And, and I don't even know if, you know, the thought about what's going on there. It may not be well-defined as part of the problem, you know, exactly what tools, uh, you know, how do you circumscribe real, real analytic tools as opposed to complex analytics. There may be something like that. Anyway, the point is that's what I think is the real content, a supplementation. Now, someone says, are we still talking about the same objects when you engage in this mathematical supplementation? Answer, there's no real issue. There's no real answer to that question. It doesn't make sense. Um, you can say you're talking about the same objects. You can say you're not. I, I don't think there's anything rides on this. Is it the same theory? Well, no. <laughs> because I said quite literally conservative, um, yeah. But it is conservative in a different sense. Conserves all the results you have. Mathematicians like that. Mm -hmm. Give me more, but don't take anything away. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's that's my picture. So questions like: Is the continuum hypothesis true or false? And eh, that's not a real question. What the real question is, do we have a, if we come up with a really valuable supplementation, will it resolve that one way or the other? And the answer will, we'll go with it, whatever it resolves, you know, and by supplementation these days, it might be some really exotic looking new kind of set theory, or it might be or strong cardinals, other, large cardinals. Yeah, exactly. Or it might be something, you know, I almost thought people were sniffing around at one point thinking, Oh, 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 we can bet we can bet it all in category theory and do it that way. But you know, there'll be something else. And the reason this is going to happen is because of incompleteness. Okay. We can always supplement. And now the question is: but are the supplementations mathematically tractable? And by mathematically tractable, I mean you get you you get a new structure that mathematicians can use and prove results about. It's not obvious mm -hmm. you can get something like that all the time. Did you ever read or look into Voivodsky's Univalent Foundations? No, I haven't. Okay. You're thinking that would be a place to go. 
Well, that that's what he was thinking, and I think uh, people are still working on it, though I'm not at all up to date on it. Look, it can happen, and it mm-hmm. could happen tomorrow, and um, it could and it could be a complete surprise. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's one of the things that gives you the sense or should give you the sense. Now I'm going to wax kind of romantic lyrical for a second. Sure. Oh, the human mind. We can come up with new concepts and new ideas and it it can keep growing. Mathematics surely shows you that in a very palpable and obvious way. Um, It it is in, in, I want to say it's conceptually open-ended which is why I'm not a certain kind of foundationalist. A certain kind of foundationalist says, oh, here's the ideology I want, set theory, for example, and I want to do all of mathematics in that. And I'm thinking, yeah, you might do all of contemporary mathematics in that, but you're not, and in fact, you're not even doing all contemporary mathematics in that because intuitionism and all these other, they're part of mathematics. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, You're not even going to do all of that, but even so, it's open-ended and something new could come along. And furthermore, you know, something new that has applications in the sciences. You can't rule that out either. That's, that's right. all open that way. So really, I'm, you know, I'm at my most optimistic when I'm thinking about this stuff. And I'm most pessimistic when I think about climate change. <laughs> yeah. Well, a big question, though, that I wonder is, I mean, something new could come along, but I wonder if something new could come along that sort of effaces everything before it. So is anti-conservative. Uh, um, that... the, I mean, like the big thing that comes to mind is Edward Nelson. And if he had proved piano arithmetic inconsistent, that would have just blasted well, of everything to smithereens. Get inconsistency, but you don't right. need inconsistency. By the way, is very humdrum. Here's how inconsistency works. I'm doing piano arithmetic, and I'm really downstream from the axioms, insanely okay. downstream. Sure. And I derive a contradiction. Okay. And nothing, nothing we have can rule that out. That, that is right. not to be ruled out ever. So, yes, there is that kind of thing. There's the crash and burn phenomenon. That's what inconsistency always threatens us with. But barring that, and by the way, it's a real threat. And the reason it's a real threat is because inconsistency is not syntactically constrained. You know what I mean by that? It's not all of the form P and not P. Oh, right. You can have an arbitrarily large syntactic object that is inconsistent and nothing smaller in it is inconsistent. That's why there can always be trouble downstream. Yeah. No, that's that's an interesting point. You know, that for those of us who are insecure, that's very (laughs) upsetting. For those of us who just go, well, that's, that's life. That's not as bad as climate you know, global warming, <laughs> we're okay. Well, global warming's pretty bad. Yeah. And you mentioned the ocean. I'm particularly worried about the ocean. Oh, so, what did I just read the other day? This is so sad. You know, here, you, you do. I don't know little... if I want to hear it. Well, then I won't tell you if you don't want to hear it. Are you ready? Okay, okay. You can tell me. Yeah, I'm ready. All right. All right. Look, you know, I'm trying to eat healthy. We all are a little bit. 
And I'm thinking to myself, sardines, sardines are healthy. They're small, they're low on the on the chain here. They don't take, they, they grow fast. You're not like damaging things. Turns out there's a, a new study that seems to show that sardines have as much heavy metals in them as swordfish because they're That's being harvested good. in the Mediterranean or at least near very polluted parts of the Mediterranean, which turns out because the Mediterranean isn't that big, is a lot of it. So I think well, I'm going to be ending up on a diet of radishes and cucumbers or something like that. I'm not sure. Anyway. Well, apparently if they're not like hand harvested, it's still causing a lot of environmental damage and a lot of collateral with small animals, et cetera. Yeah. See, I mean, so. it's really rough. I mean, I don't know what to do about, about this, what we're supposed to do collectively. Um, but mm -hmm. anyway, um, the the future of mathematics if if there's a future at all is uh, much brighter yeah okay well returning to mathematics and to our the ground level of our discussion again you referenced the hobbesian nominalism we've talked about your not deflationary nominalism well we didn't actually say what no, the hobbesian nominalism you just don't want to label it that no, I label it that. I label it that. I'm not a Fieldian nominalist. I'm not a paraphrase. Okay. I'm not a. I'm not. I'm not a pretense nominalist. I'm not a right because I'm. And here I'm alluding to all these tools that are very popular that people use to try to get out from commitments. And I'm saying, nope, 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 none of those. You want to do it? Take seriously what I told you about the quantifier and go back okay then maybe i mis misheard you earlier i thought you said you did not want to be labeled as a deflationary nominalist oh i'm but, sorry i didn't want to i didn't want my theory of truth to be labeled deflationary truth okay okay that's that's what not, i conflated picture uh, okay but, but i am a deflationary nominalist you realize we don't have a lot of terminology left it's very no. bad and so uh uh I was talking to Heim Gaifman, if you know yeah. of him, uh, yesterday. Um, we're quite close, and he's always he's full of all sorts of interesting information. And he told me yesterday something that Abraham Frankel said about the the difference between literature and mathematics, and that in literature you use many different words for the same thing, but in mathematics you use one word for many, many things. And it becomes very problematic. He's right. And I liked that. He's absolutely right. In fact, there are languages. Um, English is pretty good. And the reason English is pretty good is because, you know, so much uh, a jargon, which eventually makes it into what, its way into poetry and ceases to be jargon. Um, it, it is so rich, but there are languages, and I, the only language I have is French, and it's not a good example, other than English, is, um, or I had it anyway, just in case you, I don't have it at my fingertips anymore, but my, what I would hear is poetry in Arabic is amazing, and the reason it's amazing is because of so many words for the same thing. Um, I'm amazed by how many English words come from Arabic. Just yesterday, I was 
I was looking up the word crimson because I wanted to make sure for my task at hand that it didn't come from that it that it was from at least Middle English. That's what I needed. It I wanted a Middle okay. English word, and it came and it came from Arabic. I didn't know that. Crimson. Yeah. I, I didn't know. Yeah, that well, it at all. came from Arabic. It went from Arabic to Old Spanish or something, and then came to English. Which but alchemy, sense. alchemy, all these al words because al is the 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 word in mm -hmm. Arabic. All a lot of those words like alchemy come from Arabic. So alchemy, al is the in Arabic, and then chemia is sort of like the transmutation of metals or something in Greek, and then that's how we get. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. how this, that's that's how it happens. Yeah, but but my point was a, a, a more minor one. It was you know just you know somebody is um, writing poetry in Arabic, which I'm under the impression is still poetry is still very vital in that culture. I believe. Again, don't don't I'm not going to swear to this. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, until recently, poetry is really big in Germany and it's dying. <laughs> Um, but uh, it, it is the wealth of vocabulary that you can pull up. It's amazing. Anyway. I think English is like the biggest language. I believe I, maybe that's I'm correct. Wrong, wrong. Yeah. I believe that's correct, which is, again, very nice for literature. Yeah, um, it is. It's wonderful. Um, mm. I mean, I, I'm, maybe I'll write a short story someday, because this is a kind of silly thing I might do, where... Every single word in that short story is one I've never used in in my. That'll be a very difficult. It will be very very <laughs> difficult, and I'll probably cheat the way people do and say, "Well, come on, don't give me a hard time about the and uh and 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 or." <laughs> mm -hmm. Is am are was were d being been all those. Yes. Uh, okay, nominalism though. So you just rattled off a bunch of different types of nominalism. Uh, what are can we talk about what some of those are sure um you maybe start with hobbes because that's or well, well you hobbes, can start wherever you want to start well i was gonna i could start with some of the contemporary moves or i could you know um the contemporary moves are something like this look that's where i think i want to start because then i'll go to hobbes because i sort of shifted from his position and, to something and else speaking of hobbes though didn't he maybe i'm getting my philosophers wrong but didn't he have a geometry or a philosophy of math that he tried to propound that was like riddled with contradictions and totally well, he wrong did something much more embarrassing he thought he could i believe this is what he thought he could do square the circle oh now, that's pretty embarrassing i think no it's in a way yes and in a way no look at that time there was no proof you couldn't okay the proof that you can't square the circle comes much later Okay, what was embarrassing is that he kept making mistakes, mathematical mistakes, refusing to acknowledge they were mistakes, and I trying see. to do runarounds. And it got all mixed up. There's a beautiful book on this, um, his, history, historical book on this. And he got into these terrible fights with, I believe the guy's name was Wallace. Because it was all mixed up with religious hostilities and the, the, the atheists, et cetera, et cetera. But what it was about was that Hobbes was simply 
uh, out of his depth in the mathematics and should not have been trying to do this. Or at least he should have just acknowledged, okay, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. So that was the issue. Uh, I think that's what you were, I mean, he had yeah, that is about that is and, and geometry as well. But um, hold on a second, I've got to, okay, I did that. All right, so um, anyway, kinds of nominalism. Well, they kind of arise by strategies of trying to avoid the existential commitment to mathematical objects that seems to show up when you standardly apply mathematics in the sciences. You end up saying things like, there are infinitely many prime numbers, or there is a number with such and such properties that does this, or there are all these there is statements. So one kind of not, broadly speaking, the maneuver of choice for many years was a kind of paraphrase. Let me rewrite the apparent mathematics so that I get the power of the mathematics, um, the deductive power, without the commitments. And so there are different ways to try to do this. Um, um, when I called pretense nominalism, the, the way to do this is to try to come up with some sort of pretense operator or mess with the semantics with a pretense. In the semantics, this is um, Woodbridge and Armour Garb. They say, oh, we're not doing operators. We're, we're doing something in the semantics, you know, to sort of neutralize the 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 apparent commitment, okay? So if you have, there is a blah, 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 but it's, 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 it's kind of trapped within a pretense operator. So now I'm switching to the operator picture. Then you can say, I'm not committed to this any more than I would be if I said something as simple as um, um, pretend that one plus one equals two, et cetera, et cetera. And then you, 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 you try to get your, um, com your, implications out of that thing. You with me? Mm -hmm. And I've run arguments against that, having to do with the fact that at times we have to quantify in. So we have a there is outside the pretense operator, that's not good. And then people mm -hmm. say, no, 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 you have iterated pretense, that's how you do it. So this is all getting technical. But the pretense approach is one, but it's a, they're all generally, maybe they all fall under paraphrase approaches. And the other one, the other kind of thing is what you might do call a reconstruction. So you take the apparent mathematical object and you say, well, you were worried that it was abstractor or this or weird, but really it's this nice thing over here that lives in space time. And, that's and that sounds like Hartree. And that sounds like Hartree. Well, Hartree is yeah. really doing everything. I mean, you know, he's changing the logic which I say, no, that's not so good. And he's doing this, and I say, no, that's not so good. And there's some paraphrase, oh, that's not so good. And there's even a kind of fictionalism um, echoing pretense. So, um, but I'm saying none of these work. I mean, that's the positive view. But you were asking, here are the nominalisms that I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. And then, as I said, there's my approach, which is trying to say, look, pay attention to your quantifiers and you can recognize that sometimes you're committed to what you're quantifying over and sometimes you're not. It's as simple as that. And, and this view isn't something that I know much about 
yet. I would like to, but conventionalism, which I, I think when I think of conventionalism, I think of Quine's truth by convention. Uh, but I know Jared Warren at Stanford has a book called the shadows of syntax that I haven't gotten to yet, but does that at all appeal to you as an approach to getting uh, rid I of... I actually take conventions Clayton's... very seriously. Okay. Okay. Um, and I and I think there are implicit conventions, actually. I've written about this. But I don't think you can use it as a view to avoid commitment to mathematical objects all by itself. Okay. Okay. I mean, the problem is essentially because... Um, when you look at how mathematics is applied in the sciences, you've got straightforward indicative sentences that are quantifying over unappealing mm-hmm. objects. <laughs> That's really what's happening. And then you try to um, sort of do a runaround. And in a certain sense, it doesn't matter if you label all the mathematics conventional, um, that's not going to protect you. If you try to do an if-thenism, then you're going to mess with the inference structure that the mathematics is playing in the science. That's not going to work. So that's that's kind of broadly speaking, at a certain distance. That that's what where my objections are going to are going to look like. Okay. <clears throat> there are, are, are two more questions that I have in this whole nominalism, Platonism universe. And hmm. the first might be going back in time a little bit, but you've written about or alluded to something called the referential thesis. And Okay. Yeah. Now you got to remind me what I meant by that when I said it. I imagine that it has something to do with Quine. Okay. So... Well, that would be if it if that's what it is. See, if you give me chapter and verse, I look up chapter and verse, and I say, "Oh, that's what I was talking about." But um, it would be something like your quantifiers. Um, um, if you ask the question, "What what am I talking about? What kinds of objects are real that I'm referring to?" Um, the referential thesis might be, I just don't remember what, what I was using it to, to talk about, but I could be denying that the quantifiers have the role I'm describing. I'm, and if they don't, then you've got basically, you can define the notion of reference uh, from your quantifier, you know, uh, A refers to, etc. But um, that's not necessarily going to commit you to anything. Okay. Uh, I don't know if I'm answering because I don't remember what I... Was... Yeah, I'm sorry that I don't have the chapter in verse. Uh, okay. It's a, a uh, deficit in my notes. But then, so the last thing I'll, I'll ask then is more broadly how this debate in the philosophy of mathematics between Platonists and nominalists relates to the concerns a nominalist has regarding properties, universals, or abstract objects in general? Well, that's right. And I I started to allude to that. But in point of fact, my approach and my view 
rules out uh, properties abstract of all sorts completely. So yes. Now let me make a point right away that's important. Usually the indispensability argument couched for um, abstracta, mathematical objects or properties or um, even fictional objects uh, is a burden-shifting argument. Um, you've got to explain what's going on here away, otherwise you have to be committed to these things. When I explain why I don't have to be committed to these things, the argument, the debate is not over between the Platonists of all sorts and the nominalists, because the Platonists can come back with explanatory role. The Platonists can say, uh, you know, well, the mere fact that the quantifiers don't have to commit you to these things doesn't mean you shouldn't be committed. So now the debate has to turn on uh, what reasons do we have apart from the indispensability argument for being committed to any of these things? And now the arguments needn't all track along the same lines, okay? Arguments for why you might be committed to a, properties could differ from those for mathematical objects, et cetera, et cetera. It's the indispensability argument that kind of pulls everything together. So I think... Um, my general tool is the one I alluded to earlier, which is I don't want to be committed to something unless I have good epistemic reasons. And the best epistemic reasons are practices of epistemic access. And so ultimately, that's going to be my argument of choice against all these forms of platonic object. Okay, so you would not want to admit that we have epistemic access to redness, even though to play the devil's advocate or gr greenness, maybe. Because right mm -hmm. now, I mean, presumably you have access to this shiny new green screen that I have behind yeah, me. I see it. I uh, see it clearly. But yeah, you um... still don't want to admit that green is a thing, so to speak. Exactly. Exactly. And now this is going to turn a little bit, I mean, the Hobbesian view, as I'm um, glossing it, was something like, look, there are objects, and there are certain ways, and they're doing certain things. And they even have commonalities, but be careful, because I, I, that's a noun, but that doesn't mean I'm committed to commonalities. Okay. And all of this uh, doesn't commit me to properties. I don't have to be committed to properties on the basis of all of this. So that would be the idea, right? And I don't mm -hmm. have access. I'm having access certainly to the green screen. And I certainly have certain concepts as a result, for sure. Now I'm sounding very old, you know, like medieval old <laughs> conceptualism. Um, but I'm willing to do that for a few minutes. And um, that, you know, I, so I certainly have these concepts, but that doesn't mean I have epistemic access to a platonic object or a property or anything like that. Okay. Okay. No, I, I mean, I feel the exact same way. I, 
Okay. If I identify as something, it's a nominalist. I'm absolutely, I'm certainly not a realist about uh, properties or universals in general. Uh, now, you just uh, mentioned. I was just going to not... say something really quick. Um, one of the funniest things in Russell's book, The Problems of Philosophy, is he's uh -huh. talking about why philosophy is good. And one of the things he says is there are all these objects, properties, et cetera, et cetera, that no one seems to realize exist except philosophers. <laughs> and I'm thinking yeah. to myself, oh, my God, that's a red flag. Surely that's a red flag. Uh, yeah. In all due respect, Mr. Russell. Anyway, go on. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, no, so what I was going to say is you mentioned you don't want to be committed to the noun commonalities. And we've you already mentioned. I don't want to be committed to the object. It's a great noun. Right. Sorry. I don't want sorry, to say there are these things, commonalities. No, no, no. I don't want to say that. Right. Right. And I think we might have touched on this a little bit earlier, but you wrote a paper called Ontological Commitment in the Vernacular. Right. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a bit about what that is, and maybe we could start by... Lang I've talked about this paper a couple of times on the podcast, uh, but I assume this is about, or it connects quite obviously to Quine's on what there is. And I don't think that's a paper that can be talked about too much. So what, what is the, the general argument in his paper and how does yours relate to it? Good. I mean, this is the part I wasn't talking about. I kept focusing on the formalism for quantifiers, but of course the real debate in a certain sense, the real debate is in natural language, and that's how Quine saw it. So the question is, um, Quine has a paper on what there is, but you have to be careful because in that paper, which is a popular paper, right, we don't really get anything quite formal from Quine on this topic uh, ever, really. Um, what happens is he's saying... We say things in natural language. Some of the things we say is there are, you know, there are, there aren't any zebras in the zoo anymore. There are still bears in the forest, et cetera, et cetera. All sorts of there is statements and also exist statements. And the Quinean view is um, when you want to figure out what someone's committed to, what they think in the most fundamental sense exists, you take a piece of their discourse in natural language you transliterate it, a, a non-trivial process, into first-order logic, and then you look at what the quantifiers range over. And really, the additional point is you look at what you're stuck. Can you give an example? Well, I mean, a simple example would be I just said, you know, yeah. there there are bears. There are still I'm not going to put it that way because now I'm getting involved in tense. There are bears in the forest. So you translate that into, there is an X. Uh, X is a bear, BX. And, you know, now you have a in the forest relation between bears and something else. And you say that, and then you add, you know, where the other thing is a forest. Yeah. That's the formalization, right? Uh-huh. Is that, is that okay? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm doing this, which is really not helpful. I'm writing. No, no, that's, that's helpful. Oh, okay. And the there is the the quantifier is what 
brings in the ontological commitment. And it's committing you, in this particular case, both to bears and to forests. Unless you want to make it a predicate where the bears in the forest, in the forest is a predicate, and then you're not committed to forests. You just have bears. There is an X, bear X, and uh, um, uh, forest X. So X is in the Mm -hmm. forest. And now you're just committed to the bear. Right? Right. Yep. So that, that's kind of the picture. That's what you're supposed to do. And later on, the question became, and Quine touches on this very briefly, um, um, well, do what is going on here? Is it that there is and uh, uh, exist are always committing in the vernacular? And he goes, well, you know, people can be sloppy in how they talk. And, you, you, you know, really the notion of commitment here is a, um, a regimented notion. It's a you know, uh, the the folk aren't really concerned with this. The folk don't really care about what exists and what doesn't. That was something Carnap said. That was something Quine said. That was something I think is patently false. Okay, the folk kill each other over what they think exists and doesn't exist. Okay, folk <laughs> take yes. it really seriously, right? And furthermore, I want to add: stop calling them folk. Um, anyway, um, so the picture becomes what's going on with, uh, there is and exists in natural language. Are those the marks of commitment? And the claim I make is no, they're not. And then I start giving lots of examples, like there are more Greek goddesses than gods. Perfectly good statement. But no one thinks there are, well, for the most part, no one thinks there are Greek gods and goddesses. Or um, uh, a Van Inwagen example that I love, which is something to the effect of, you know, everybody thinks that Dickens' characters, this is a, a gross paraphrase, everybody thinks that Dickens' <laughs> characters are, are, um, are caricatures, insane, insanely, you know, cardboard caricatures. Although... Such characters exist. There are many who are full-blooded, blah, 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 blah. So there are actually a number of uses of exist where that's not committing either in natural language. No one thinks, I I think there are such things. No. So now the question is, when are we doing this in the vernacular and when aren't we? So I have a paper that's forthcoming. So I'm going to get jargony for a sec. Um, um, the paper that's forthcoming says, as a, as, a, as a matter of what these words mean, they're never committing. It's actually a Gricean implicature. Commitments show up as Gricean implicatures. So there's a whole paper working that out. Okay. Right, so maybe I don't know how it's... to make that broad. I mean, sometimes I, I, I trip over the jargon and I'm, I'm, I'm stuck, you know. What I'm saying yeah. here is we kind of imply commitment in natural language. We never state it. Maybe that's the way to put it. So I haven't done an episode on philosophy of language yet, though there are some coming up. Could right. you say what you mean by a Gricean? Oh, well, who Grice was and what a Gricean implicature is. So Grice is this uh, apparently eccentric philosopher who um, wrote a paper, a couple papers about this, 
it has turned out to be extremely influential and important in philosophy and in linguistics. And the idea, I'm going to give the, the, the simple-minded uh, classic example. So you might ask yourself, what does and mean? And the hope is that um, you might have thought, oh, well, uh, A and B, you know, uh, A and B is true if A is true and B is true. And that's it. There's nothing else. No other conditions. So it's as we call it truth functional. It just depends on the truth. If one of them is false, then it's false, you know. However, we are comfortable saying John got out of bed and brushed his teeth. We're less comfortable saying John brushed his teeth and got out of bed. And the reason we're less comfortable is it looks like there's a tense issue here. That if we say and use it in that way, it suggests that the first thing came before the other thing. Grice's claim is that that isn't really part of the meaning of and. It's an, what he called an implicature. And the test for it being an implicature is that, as it's called, you can cancel it. You can say, but that's not the case. So I can say, John brushed his teeth and got out of bed, but not in that order. However, I can't say, John brushed his teeth and got out of bed, but he didn't brush his teeth. That's incoherent. So the truth value matters, but the tense is not as important. It can be canceled. So what I'm saying, that's, that's the notion of what I was describing as a Gricean implicature. Of course, it's very technical, and there are lots of other things going on. That's roughly it. And as I said, that's really important because it's drawing a line between when we say something it's part of the semantics, the meaning of what we say, as opposed to something that we are uh, um, uh, expecting or um, agree to. It's usually not conscious, um, but isn't part of the meaning. Another example, um, Ellen went to the edge of the cliff and jumped. Most of the time we think, oh, well, that, what that means is she jumped off. Well, no, uh, it could literally mean she jumped up and down, okay? Not an it's an implicature that she went off, but not an impli but but not that she went up and down or went up a little bit and then went down continuously. Um, is well, that, that, that was a very good yeah, no, that was a very good introduction for the Robinson's podcast universe to a topic in the philosophy of language. So Okay. Um thanks. Now So my move Last thing, my move is, and this is a new move, is to say when it comes to ontology commitments in natural language, they're all implicatures. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. So there are a lot of other topics that I want to get to with you. Um, mathematics and formal and natural languages, some of your work in epistemology, more stuff in metaphysics, uh, but... Uh, my dog is now, he, he's used to going on his long, very long morning walk at this time. Well, like two hours ago, about the time we started. Oh, I'm so, so sorry. I don't want no, to no, 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 that's it's so fine. It's so okay. But 
maybe if it's okay with you, we could do a part two at some point and get to those other topics. But for now, end with uh, talking about one more of your poems. Oh, sure. And uh, yeah, okay. I, have I have one in mind. Oh, you, excuse me? Oh, I said, I have one in mind. If there's one you wanted to talk about instead, though, that's fine. No, no, I'll talk about what you have in mind. Okay, the, the one that I wanted to finish with was Odin Gets to See It All. Oh, that one. Yes, that's one of my favorites, actually. Okay, good. Favorites. What do you want to talk about? Uh, well, can we start with a reading? <laughs> Again? Uh, yes. yes, I can do that. Okay. Yeah. Hungry for control, the dang fool god gouges his own eye out and drops it in the seedy well. Then he gulps down the thick stew Mimir has ladled out for him. Pond scum, decomposing bird, not pure by a long shot, but the usual for neglected wells. I don't think I'm any smarter, Odin says the throbbing in his esophagus finally subsiding. Mimir shrugs and counsels patience. Sure enough, at dawn some days later, there is dew for the first time. Those awake at such an hour wonder what large thing has spent the night crying. And some centuries hence, Christians will suspect dewdrops are angel eggs. But for Odin, they are new eyes. And he sees the dawn from everywhere at once. Okay. Clap, 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 clap. <laughs> <laughs> so first question. probably read that poem from memory, although I didn't do it because when I used to do readings, that poem came up the most, and I just read it, the, and I just ended up memorizing it. I didn't try to. Yeah. So I I don't think that, and maybe there are different, there, I'm sure there are different views on this, but I don't think that a poem has to have a meaning or an aboutness or a purpose. But was there one in mind, do you think, when you wrote this? Well, yes, I guess. I mean... Um, I mean, I, I love mythology and I've written so many poems about mythology, not as much about Viking, much more about the Greek, but, and what, what I was thinking about, and I remember the, the first, the earliest image that stuck me, with me for years before I was able to write this poem was this idea that, you know, if a piece of God, a, a God, a mythological God's flesh ended up by accident on the earth somewhere, it would be like cancer. It would mutate and spread. And I was trying to get- That is so cool. That yeah, is such that a was, cool idea. That was the original image. Um, I kept playing with it and trying to make it work in a poem. And, um, and it, it just wasn't happening. And then I had a couple of other images because the way I write poems is what I call images, I pull them together like on my bed or on the floor, and then I'm looking at them and seeing how they can connect to each other and what relationships they might have. And then this poem came to me, and really the idea is, 
if you know the the Viking mythology, which, which we have very little of, unfortunately, destroyed, by the way, by, I think, Christianity, largely. Um, Odin was a trickster god. He was like those American Indian, like the fox or something. He would be fooling all the time. That's what smart meant to him, okay? And then he wanted more of it. And that he goes to the well of wisdom. And what I'm doing in the poem is, it's not what he expected, <laughs> as it were. And that's the problem. You go into learning things, et cetera, et cetera, and they have a way of mutating on you, turning into something that you didn't see coming. This has been my experience my whole life. And so the idea is what happens is, here's the form that wisdom takes. You know, he plucks his eye out. That's the myth, drops him. That's why Odin is always with an eye patch. And what happens is, and now you see the mutation of the mutation image that I started with. The dew drops are everywhere. And Odin gets a vision, a kind of omniscience, where he's seeing everything from a different point of view. So that's what I was doing. Oh, it's a great poem. Uh, another, I guess, couple of questions that I have is you mentioned that you don't walk in Christian circles, but Christianity has occurred in two of your poems and, and that we've read and then one that you mentioned that we didn't read. Why do you think that comes up so much if you're if you don't identify as Christian? Well, I as a child, I sang in the choir. OK, Um uh, I, my parents weren't very religious. I mean, they were like, you know, your typical, you know, my father was a Muslim. My mother was some sort of Christian. I don't think she knew which kind she was. But, you know, they separated when I was very young and I, I my mother would take me to church and I was and I could sing. And so I actually would sing in the choir. Um, and I, I love the music. I still love the music and the imagery. And so this is, it's imagery that I'm really pulling on. And it's the same thing with the Greek pathology. That's why I pull on it. What you have is you have imagery with powerful emotional content. And that's what I'm going for in the poems. The poems aren't to be little abstract images. I'm trying, they're, they're to be conglomerations. And I guess I pull on it for that reason. I became an atheist very naturally. It wasn't traumatic. It wasn't, you know, I'm not an angry atheist. I'm just, you know, I don't know what else to be. I, I don't see the arguments to be anything else. There are no good epistemic reasons. You got it. I mean, really, it's the, it's the same thing. So, but there's no, you know, I don't I don't join clubs. I don't, you know, there's nothing like that. For me, it's just, but the imagery is very, very powerful and it's very old. I was very young. So I think that's why. Okay. And then the last thing about the poem is violence has come up a, a lot and very graphic violence, both in this poem and the last poem. But you are a very jovial, cheery, happy person who strikes me as somebody who doesn't even have the capacity for violence. So uh, how is it? 
tell me more but how, do, how is it that it comes up then in your poetry so much it comes up because it's in the world because i see it no i actually don't think i have any capacity for violence i don't know if i should admit that in public because then maybe that's dangerous then people go, maybe oh. it makes you a target hopefully not target. hopefully not for my audience well certainly when i was a child to some extent i was a target um, um i was i got clever enough eventually that i was no longer a target I mean, uh, and again, I don't want to make the amount of violence that was set upon me sound like too much or, or traumatizing. Uh, that would be that would be a, a conversation between me and my therapist if I ever had one. But <laughs> but no, um, um, it's in the world. And I mean, somebody was asking me that about Hereafter Landscapes, another podcast saying, well, there's this going on in, in, in Hereafter Landscapes. I mean, what is that? And I said, what is that? Is that it's in the world. Uh, it's not that it's in me. It's not. Um, um, I'm writing about what I see and what I'm reacting to. So I, I think that's ultimately my answer. I mean, hmm. some of us live in very privileged environments where we're kind of isolated or insulated. Insulated is the word from violence. Others of us aren't. So I'm not often thinking about the violent uh, protagonist. I'm thinking about the victim. Um, oh, but sure. That's part of what's in the world. So I don't yeah. know what else to say than that. Anyway. No, no, good. Did you see The Northman? I did not, actually. Okay. As Is somebody that... who loves mythology as well, uh, I would think that, well, maybe if you don't love violence, it's not for you. But uh, it's a movie I'd love to hear your thoughts on if you ever get you around. You know what I it. actually like that most people don't like? Old movie, really old movie. But I actually got a kick out of it. I really did like it when I saw it many years ago. Eric the Viking. Do you even know about that movie? No, I do not. No, the actor who played Eric, I, I read once in an interview years later, he's like, yeah, I hated that movie. That was a terrible movie. I'm embarrassed it even comes up. And I thought, no, that's a very clever movie. It was not a terrible movie. Do you know movie. who the actor was? I forgot his name. Tim Robbins. I'm going to look it up. Maybe Tim Robbins. I, I have to be careful about this. I'm terrible. With it movies. is Tim Robbins indeed. Okay. And John Cleese is in it. That's funny. Yes. No, it, it is a, um, a related product to Monty Python. Oh. Who's, who's kind is of it a comedy? Movie. Yes. Oh, that's funny. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you for humoring me by reading so much of your poetry. I really got a kick out of that and talking to you about it. And, um, it was great. and I always thank you very much. love the philosophy of math. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. Thank you so much for joining me and, and blessing my, my guests with your presence. Oh, <laughs> that's lovely. Do you say that to everybody? <laughs> no, I haven't said that before. <laughs> okay. But, uh, well, anyway, thank you very much for inviting me.